Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause, and I hope that you're staying healthy, happy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's not mess around. Let's get right at it. Later on, we're going to meet Gregory Sestero, star of the new found footage film, Infrared. Now, in that movie, he plays the creepy caretaker of an abandoned schoolhouse. If his name rings a bell, it's likely because you've attended one of the Midnight Madness screenings of The Room, a movie so deliciously awful it became a cult favorite since its release in 2003. He played Mark, the character that launched into infamy with this line. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. In the early 2000s, the Oh, hi, Mark line inspired a million memes. It was on t-shirts. It was absolutely everywhere before Greg turned the experience of making the So Bad It's a Hoot movie into a book, which eventually went on to become the Oscar-nominated movie The Disaster Artist, starring James Franco and Seth Rogen. We talk about infrared and whether or not 20 years on, if the room is an embarrassment or a source of pride. That's a little bit later on. We'll also meet Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmakers Dan Geller and Dana Goldfein, who have created a fascinating look at the iconic Canadian singer and poet Leonard Cohen. It's called Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song, and it uses one of Cohen's most famous songs as a starting point. And we'll find out why one of Cohen's most famous songs was rejected by his record company. And lots more stuff. It's a great interview. First, though, Martin Freeman joins me. The English actor has won the Emmy, a BAFTA, and a Screen Actors Guild Award, and played the beloved character Tim Canterbury in the original British series of The Office. He was Dr. John Watson in the British crime drama Sherlock, opposite Benedict Cumberbatch. He was Bilbo Baggins in the Hobbit film trilogy, and will soon be seen in Black Panther Wakanda Forever, reprising the role of Everett K. Ross. Today, we'll talk about his newest project, the critically acclaimed police series The Responder, now playing on BritBox. In the new show, he plays a Liverpool, England-based first responder. Night after night, he faces crime, violence, and addiction on the streets whilst battling against personal demons that threaten to destabilize his work, his marriage, and his mental health. The dark humor is sometimes painfully tragic and always challenging. When he's forced to take on a new rookie partner, both soon discover that survival in this high-pressure, relentless twilight world depends on them either helping or maybe destroying each other. Martin Freeman joined me via Zoom from England. You're supposed to be a police officer. Command. There's no rush for the wicked. The new boy people should know that. It's such important work. He's a mess. He should be under arrest. You okay? I can't remember the last time I did something good. Now, you say that once you were sent the scripts for The Responder, and here's the quote, after reading the first few pages, I felt like this was really something else. You must get sent a lot of stuff. Your desk is probably piled with scripts. What made this one feel different? Because it felt like um, it had been written by someone who means it. Mm. And it felt like it had been written by someone who wanted to say what they wanted to say, as opposed to a committee of people sort of dictating what uh, should be said. Um, 
And it felt in, in the nicest possible way that, you know, that I can say about Tony Schumacher, who is the writer of Responder, it felt like someone who didn't quite know um, all the rules. So he didn't quite know what he shouldn't be doing, you know, so, uh, and, and I like that. I like, um, I like it when someone, when someone is writing something because they really, really want to, as opposed to, you know, it wasn't a commission, let's do a thing set in Liverpool about a copper. It was something that very much from his heart. And um, and that doesn't necessarily make something a good piece of writing, obviously. Mm-hmm. We, we have all got a story. We've all got history. It doesn't mean that we can all write a great screenplay. But um, I liked the economy of it. I liked that there weren't big explosions and car chases everywhere. And it, it wasn't um, super, super plot heavy. It wasn't procedural. It wasn't kind of police procedural. It was about the inner workings of this um, man uh and also the inner workings of some of the people around him as well um so it wasn't so much to do with him being a policeman it was just to do with him being a man in the midst of um a a meltdown really well he's described uh being in the police as like uh some long lsd trip is Mm. the quote that i read from him about this and the show certainly has not a surreal quality i don't think but Mm. there are things that happen uh during this show that i think people would find uh surprising and i think uh the more surprising Mm. though uh, the 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 moment might be uh, like uh, when Chris, your character, finds mm-hmm. an eighty five year old woman uh, who's dead, and there's yeah. a pack of cigarettes uh, next to her, and he takes one of her cigarettes, and there's yes. you know there there's things that 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 yes. seem kind of outlandish, but yes. I'm sure that they're probably based in fact and based in truth. They, I think they are. I think a lot of a lot of the things because um, Tony, the writer, w- was in the police for eleven or twelve years, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the stuff that's in the show was either based on stuff that he had done himself or seen himself or had heard other people do. And of course, writer's imagination, of course, you know, it's it's not a documentary about his life. Um, You know, my character also goes through her paperwork to see if there's any money about, you know, so like he's, he's not, um, he's not Gandhi, right. But he's also, he's not, he's not a terrible person, but he's, um, he is a very frustrated um, man who's, sort of in the middle of a kind of breakdown, I think, and completely disenchanted with his job, tired beyond all recognition, emotionally and physically tired. And he's kind of at the end of his tether. So yeah, him nicking her cigarettes or nicking her, you know, her little flask of soup and, and also going through to see if there might be any money knocking about is of course, um, either odd or just wrong. Right. It's, you know, like Nick and the cigarettes, that's a bit odd. And, you know, you would you would you would hope someone's not doing that to your mother or grandmother. You're listening to Martin Freeman on The Richard Krauss Show, his new show, The Responder, is streaming right now on Brickbox. But somehow I think I hope we still have him as a. If not a hero, then a good protagonist, you know, because clearly he, this is not an advertisement for a great policeman of how policing sh- should be done. Uh, but nor is it actually a complete indictment of the police. I think you see. Um, him and his colleagues trying their very best in difficult circumstances. Do you think that uh, post-pandemic, after two years of people being locked down, uh, people's frustrations rising to the fore, Hmm. that a a character like Chris, Mm -hmm. uh, who does operate slightly outside the boundaries, Hmm. is more relatable to people now than it might have been two or three years ago? Possibly. I think on the one hand, yes. And on the other hand, it might be more um, condemned, I suppose, Mm. than two years ago because of some of the changes that have happened in, well, at least in the West, I guess. Um, 
I think people, I think there'd be some people who would be more ready to judge the police and maybe more people and, and maybe some people more ready to, to understand uh, someone at the end of their tether, maybe. Yeah. So maybe a bit of both. The show was set in Liverpool, England. Mm. Uh, I think when most people think of Liverpool, England, certainly where I'm sitting here in Canada, mm. we mm-hmm. think of football and we think of, of the Beatles. Um, yeah. What perspective did working on this show and shooting in Liverpool give you about the city that perhaps you didn't have before? Well, I suppose to be fair, I have a slightly, uh, I'm closer to Liverpool than, than, than they're Canadian. <laughs> yeah. so, I start, so I I think of a slightly more than the Beatles and football, although those things are pretty um, central to the identity of Liverpool. It's true. Um, uh, that it's a varied city, that there are um, more well-off bits. There is, I mean, because I think what everyone understands is that, that, you know, Liverpool has been racked by a lot of deprivation for a long, long time. But also there are middle class bits and leafy suburbs and, you know, kind of more the more kind of posh areas of Liverpool as well. And it's all kind of in one, you know, that all goes into the melting pot of what makes Liverpool. Um, unfortunately, because it was during pandemic, I couldn't explore Liverpool the way that I would have liked because right. it was closed down. I mean, like right. as every, everywhere was pretty much locked down and um, it opened up a little bit more as the filming went along. But what I've always understand about Liverpool, you know, outside of the stereotypes, it is, you know, I mean, all stereotypes have a, have a kernel of truth and the humour is definitely true. You know, the, the speed of humour, the, the reliance on humour to get over bad times is definitely true. Um, I think Liverpool does see itself quite proudly as a, as a city of stand-up comedians, I guess. Um, and there is truth in that. Um, and that can be fantastic and sometimes a little bit wearing as well because <laughs> people are certainly going to tell you when you're not getting it. You know, if, you, if you're falling short, you're definitely going to um, be told. Uh, but no, I mean, gen- generally pretty pretty friendly, you know. I think I think they, as everybody does, I think, I think the people of Liverpool probably get tired if they feel they're misrepresented. Mm-hmm. Or if they feel they're um, misunderstood or stereotyped too much, and so that was obviously something that I have zero interest in. I'm, not, I, you know, I'm not from Liverpool, as you know, and um, and I certainly don't want to come as an outsider to take the Mickey out of Liverpool or to say do a sort of SNL skit on Liverpool. Right. Um, Tony is a scouser, so he has no interest in that. Yeah, we we wanted to honour the story. Really, the story isn't about Liverpool, but I think Liverpool inevitably becomes a bit of a character in in the story. But it really it could have been set it could have been set in any major city, probably because the stresses and strains of a family life and b um, doing that job in a major conurbation is pretty difficult. You know, that's a, it's a thankless, a, literally a thankless task a lot of the time. If you don't open this door, I'm coming through it, and then I'm going to come through you. I'm going to count to three. One, two, all right. The job has ruined me. There's blood on me boots, and it never stops. It's such important work. You need to focus on the good that you do. Can you just sort yourself out, please? No, I'm all right. You said that last time. Rachel Hargreaves, she's partnered with Carson for the rest of the week. God help her. That was Martin Freeman on The Richard Krause Show. Watch his new series, The Responder, on BritBox right now. Hallelujah. 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 
that was, of course, a little taste of Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen's haunting hymn of desire, spirituality, and the mystery of life. Everybody knows that song, or at least you know one of the over 300 cover versions of the song. It's been recorded over and over again in the last couple of decades, but did you know that it took Leonard Cohen seven years to write the song? Did you know that when Various Positions, the album that contained the original version of Hallelujah, was handed in to the record company, they didn't want to release it? Of course, hindsight is 2020, but at the time the album was rejected by Walter Yetanoff, the head of Columbia Records, refusing to release it domestically, he gave Cohen a little showbiz kiss off. Leonard, he said, we know you're great, but we don't know if you're any good. It wasn't until other people latched onto the song that it took on a life of its own. John Cale of the Velvet Underground recorded a beautiful version of the song, which was then used on the soundtrack, of all things, of the Mike Myers animated Shrek movie. And then singer Jeff Buckley recorded a beautiful rendition of his own. Thanks to those recordings and the hundreds of others, the song is now a staple, and it's also the subject of a new documentary called Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song, which is now playing in select theaters across the country. Check your local listings for a time and place near you. The movie, directed by my guest today, documentary filmmakers Dan Geller and Dana Goldfine, looks at Cohen, his life, his career, and of course, that haunting hymn, Hallelujah. Dan Geller and Dana Goldfine join me via Zoom from San Francisco. You look around and you see a world that cannot be made sense of. You either raise your fists or you say hallelujah. 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 I was a young reporter for Rolling Stone magazine in 74 doing a piece on Leonard. He's so gracious. It goes like this, the fourth. Leonard, he was always a spiritual seeker. Unlocking the mysteries of life was his primary preoccupation. Sitting in a meditation hall for four or five hours a day, you kind of get straight with yourself. You know, it was often starting with this song. First thing, coffee, then working on Alleluia. There was a lot of verses. The number 180 comes to mind. The real song where that comes from, no one knows that is grace, that is a gift. Tell me a little bit about your introduction uh, to Leonard Cohen. Have you always been fans and winding your way slowly towards this documentary? I mean, this is this is hard to say to a Canadian, you know, that I, but no, I, 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 you know, neither of us were fans or even had tracked much about Leonard Cohen. Now, we, weren't, a, we weren't unfans. No, like, but we, we liked what we had heard. But it is a it is a shameful thing to say, particularly to Canadians. <laughs> but uh but when we had gone to uh, uh a concert that our actually friends brought us to one of the concerts that went on the, those tours in the 2000s uh and heard Leonard perform and exposed to the breadth of his catalog because that at three and a half hours you get a lot of Leonard Cohen songs and never did it outstay its welcome. It was it, it just left there floating in some other space that from that point and then the second time we went, uh, yes, then we were engaged uh, as, as Leonard Cohen fans. Oh, I was an instant fan after seeing his you know first song at the first concert that we were privileged enough to go to. Thank God he had that end of, end of the life or not end of his life, but, you know, 70, 70 year old something 
tour. Unbelievable. Yeah. I'm sort of in the same boat as you. I grew up hearing the songs like Suzanne and all that, which didn't really appeal to my Kiss and Rolling Stones <laughs> loving, you know, uh, heart. So uh, Leonard Cohen for me was something that my parents would have listened to until I finally saw him live. And the live performances were so much more playful than I thought they would be. Uh-huh. It was funny. The songs, of course, are amazing. Uh, and for me, they just took on a life that they simply hadn't had uh, from the recordings that I had heard. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think he poured everything he had in. I mean, Sharon Robinson says that he gave the audience every single night everything he had. And he also had become such um, a deep, deeply wise human being. And his sense of humor was there all along, but he really let it out. He really let it rip in those that last five years of touring. You're listening to Dan Geller and Dana Goldfine on The Richard Krause Show. Their movie, Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song, is in theaters now. There's such a great shot uh, at one point in your film. It's in that last tour, the, you know, five-year-long tour. He's in his (laughs) 70s. And uh, you see him skipping off the the stage like someone who's 25 years old. It's really a a wonderful image to have of him. It's beautiful. And and that he uh, could do that. I think that was in a set break between the two sets that comprised the three and a half hour. But even to say, okay, that's after 90 minutes of performing. There's no stool that he was sitting on, right? Mm -hmm. There's no bench he was sitting on. He was on his feet, other than when he was on his knees, yes. <laughs> he was on his feet singing that whole time. And I, I remember Sharon Robinson, who's become a friend now too. Sharon would say, oh my God, we're standing there for three and a half hours every night. So my feet would <laughs> ache. I'd go home and have to put them up on the bed. Why do you think it was that he didn't go to music or didn't pursue music really until he was 30 years old? And why do you think it was successful for him? Those are two really different questions. But I mean, the first question, um, why did it take him that long? He was an incredibly successful poet at a very early age. I mean, just after graduating from college, his first book of poetry was published and it was acclaimed throughout Canada. Um, And then he wrote a couple novels. I mean, I kind of think, you know, if you look at different interviews with Leonard, he gives different reasons for why he got into, into music. Sometimes he says, uh he didn't think he'd be able to ever really fully support himself writing poetry even if he sold you know a bestseller poetry book it wasn't enough to live on um other times he said you know i was always writing songs um and playing songs and he was of course in this country western band as a high school student called the buckskin boys so i think music was always part of this i I, I like the answer that he gave to adrian clarkson in that 1966 interview where and it was of a moment right when the boundaries were dissolving, you know, the, that you, did, you didn't have to fall into the category of a singer or a poet or, a, and, I, and I think that that may have encouraged him a bit as well, that, uh, look, he was a seeker. Yeah, all his life he was seeking, mm-hmm. um, and, and all his life he was also writing books, you know, that, that when he talks about all of the work as a piece, you know, that, that's really interesting that the poetry that he continued to write, uh, arguably the art in some of his journals, you know, that and the songs, it's all of a, of a piece of a creative mind that, you no, know, he wasn't a dancer. Okay, so we'll give him that one. <laughs> but then why was he successful? I mean, I think 
that there were these moments of serendipity that really went into it. I think, you know, the fact that even though someone up in, sorry, Canadians, up in Montreal told him that Suzanne was just like every other song that they've mm-hmm. heard. Yeah. Kind of shocking statement. Yeah. Um, but through meeting Judy Collins and her immediate acknowledgement um, and sense of, well, this is not just any song. And the fact that she covered it and sort of put him out into the stratosphere as a songwriter. And then not that long after that, she said, look, Leonard, you got to sing your own songs. And, and, you know, the forcing of Leonard out on stage and then his embarrassment and then the making of him, making him get back in the saddle after he left the stage. I think he had just these moments along the way that led to where he stood on that stage in his 70s, mm-hmm. um, delivering the most incredible concert in the world. You're listening to Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmakers Dan Geller and Dana Goldfein on The Richard Krause Show. I started this interview by asking why they chose to tell Cohen's entire life story through the lens of one very specific song. The song encapsulates so much of what Leonard grappled with throughout his life. So if you're going to take one song that touches on themes that are in a lot of his other songs, but puts it all in one package and a song that is so well known, uh, often strangely interpreted (laughs) in cover versions and other times beautifully so, um, that seemed like a great way then to open uh, Pandora's box there and see what's going on with all the, the conflicting impulses and explorations of, of Leonard Cohen, the, the, the seeker. So, but the other funny thing, it, we didn't know this going into the movie, but at, over time we realized that to limb what those preoccupations were and continued to be after even the writing of the song, we needed to know his other music. Mm-hmm. And so there are 22 other Leonard Cohen songs in the, in the movie. We never thought that was gonna be the case. Uh, but, and yet that's, it's essential, like to, to understand Hallelujah, it does help to see something about Suzanne. It does help to know Bird on a Wire. It does help. So all of these things about sex with Chelsea Hotel, it all sort of fuses itself into place. Well, and I mean, Leonard Cohen lived such a rich and varied life. I feel like it it so helped to have this prism that we had chosen, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and every time the question that we would ask ourselves is how does this fit in to that particular prism? Um, It was a, it was incredibly good discipline. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we were determined not to make a film that was uh, one second over two hours, Um, you know, and I think to do Leonard justice Mm -hmm. and look at his entire life, I think it would be a series. Um, But it was also, it was just a gift to go, well, could we, it was a challenge to ourselves. Could we pull this off and, um, and look at this amazing artist and his rich life through this prism? I understand that you had done sort of a rough cut of the first half of the movie, the first part of the movie. You showed it to Robert Corey, who was Leonard Cohen's longtime manager, and he gave you access to Leonard Cohen's journals. And that's a remarkable thing. And so we see the covers of them in one shot in the book, and they were kind of unlikely. Some of them looked like they had just been bought at the pharmacy down the <laughs> down the corner, little birds on the cover and things. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that what a treasure trove uh, that must have been. It was, it was a hard one treasure trove to get access to, or a hard one access to a treasure. I mean, basically what happened is, I think the earliest time that we really thought hard about the journals was when we were interviewing Ratso Sloman. Mm-hmm. 
who was our first interview back in. And, and he was a confidant of Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan. He's a name. If you've read books about the Rolling Stones or any rock and roll figure in the seventies and eighties, Ratso's name comes up. That's right. Yeah. He was a young Rolling Stone reporter in the mid seventies when, when he first interviewed Leonard and they just really hit it off and continued to have this dialogue that went on through the early 2000s. And he, uh, Ratso generously bequeathed us with his tapes of all of those mm -hmm. interactions. But when we were sitting with him that first interview, he talked, he started talking about the journals. And, um, and then a couple other people mentioned these mythological journals and we went to Robert Corey, um, Leonard's once manager, now head of the estate and started asking him about these journals. And he would sort of, for the first year, he just had this little Mona Lisa smile on his face and he would never um, <laughs> admit to what extent they were real? Well, we knew they were real. It was more because- We didn't know how many there were. Well, and we didn't know whether they were extant. You know, did, right. did Leonard toss them out? Did they get lost, you know, somewhere along the way between Montreal and Los Angeles? Who knew, right? So that that was the, the question. Where are those journals? And, um, and at, then at a certain point, a little further on, Robert brought one out. Uh, and when we were down in his office and- he showed it to us. We couldn't touch it. Couldn't touch it. Uh, we just showed it to us. It was, you know, just a, a, a one of these wetting of the appetites. And then eventually we really, uh, having fully earned each other's uh, um, trust and responsibility, he opened the doors fully. You're listening to documentary filmmakers Dan Geller and Dana Goldfine on The Richard Krause Show. Their film, Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song, is in theaters now. Robert looked at, I think we had cut first a first first early pass at the first say 30 minutes or so and um we arranged to sit with robert and look at it actually in morgan neville's office morgan neville's the amazing director of 20 feet from stardom and many yeah, many other yeah, great yeah. films and he's an ep on this project anyway so so morgan was generous enough to lend us his office and sit with the two of us and robert as we watched for a terrifying 30 minutes um <laughs> robert watched the film um, and at the end of it, you know, we were sitting there on eggshells and he turned and he said, I think that this is really, really going to be good. Um, and everything just started shifting after that. Um, it's not like he immediately opened the doors and showed us the journals, but we could sense that it might happen. Um, and then as we continued to show him little bits and pieces, he became more and more comfortable with the direction we were going and what we were doing. And he started learning new things from what we were uncovering. And um, eventually he was like, okay, here you go. And did they point you in a different direction, do you think? Or were there revelations that came up? Documentary filmmaking isn't a linear art. Things come up, things happen. You don't have an end point often. I remember the great Canadian documentarian, Alan King once told me, he said, <laughs> I know my movies are finished when I run out of money. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, for us. Usually it's when we run out of money and we have submitted to a film festival that, is, that accepts us and we have to deliver. Yeah. I, it, with this one, the, it, the movie pulled us in directions. The more we wound up with um, archival interview material with Leonard, the more the movie began to gravitate toward Leonard and, and Leonard's mind and Leonard's journey and preoccupations. Uh, you know, less so that the interviews that we conducted um, pulled us in any particular direction, 
Uh, but listening to Leonard and unearthing all of this incredible interview footage from 1966, you know, through 2016. And his eloquence in those interviews, yeah. it's almost as if you're reading poetry off the page as it spills out of his mouth. It's unbelievable. Well, it's we, unbelievable. We were talking about this earlier that you would expect someone interviewed as often as, Len as Leonard was to start repeating those those stories and repeat or repeating phrasings um and he didn't he just you look at interview after interview after interview he may be auditioning some ideas that you see in Kuwait and then more fully developed in another interview but no that that facility with with language uh <laughs> startling it, that you just don't in any of the other interviews that we've seen about other people i've never seen that clarity and, and specificity without repeat well and it's almost as if he is reading a script in his own head that he's writing as he's delivering mm. i mean one of the things i was just thinking about as you were asking this question is there's this moment we found this unbelievable archival footage where bob dylan's being given an award by um what the this ascap uh songwriters right. anyway and, and leonard is asked off the cuff you know um what's your relationship with Bob Dylan or, you know, how much have you been influenced by Bob Dylan? He delivers this stunningly articulate, hilarious, dry, dry, droll, like, I don't know, it's, I don't know how long it is, you know, like, yeah. like outpouring of his relationship with Dylan that just brings the house down. And he did not write that ahead of time. Right. So. That was Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker Dan Geller and Dana Goldfein on Zoom from their home in San Francisco. Their film, Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song, is great. Check it out, and you can find it in theaters right now. In this segment, we're going to meet Gregory Sestero. He's the star of a new film called Infrared. It's a found footage horror film uh, that takes place in an old abandoned school. There's a paranormal investigator and a production crew. They've gained access to this area and they want to shoot a pilot for like a ghost hunting kind of show. And then they meet Gregory Sestero's character. And let's just say things go in a slightly different direction than they had originally planned. Gregory is one of the stars of this. He's also one of the stars of the film The Room. Now, this is one of those so bad it's good movies. It's turned into a cult film over the years. We'll talk about that in just a little while. It is interesting to note that while The Room is considered to be one of the worst movies ever made, the film that was made about the making of The Room, it's called The Disaster Artist with James Franco and Seth Rogen, was actually nominated for Academy Awards. So there's a weird little bit of synergy happening there. Anyway, let's get to my interview with Gregory Sestero, who joined me via Zoom from Los Angeles. I want to start with asking you about Home Alone, Lost in Disney World. This is a, a script that you wrote uh, many, many years ago. I went to go see the movie Home Alone. You know, I, I wanted to live in that world. I was like so taken with it. I love the fantasy of it, kind of taking over your own home. And, um, you know, instead of go, instead of you know, doing homework and focusing on school, I started writing a sequel and I, and I got the idea to write a part for myself playing Macaulay Culkin's like older friend. Um, and I got super into, I was sketching out like chapters and like handwriting out outlines. Um, and it just took me like three, four months. And I was, I mean, at that point, you're, you know, you're 12, that's a big 
chunk in your life. <laughs> That's right. But I was I was obsessed, and I was like, oh my god, this is this movie's gonna happen. I totally believe in it. I'm not gonna go back to school because <laughs> um, I had gone to Disney World like the summer before, and I was super sad to go back to school. So the escape was sort of tying those two together of uh, Home Alone and Disney World, and I really thought like the idea of combining the magic of Disney World in a film would be something that I thought would really pop. So um, I drew the cover, I tracked down John Hughes' company um, and I got the whole thing packaged and sent to him. And I swear, I, I fully thought it was gonna happen. Um, and then, um, yeah, it was basically the story was he gets on the wrong plane, he ends up in Disney World and the two bad guys are now janitors at Disney World and they see him go by, it's very similar. And then, um, you know, the whole thing goes down where I'm there on vacation with my family and we team up and, and fight them. So, oh yeah, ultimately I got the letter back from John Hughes. I was like, you know, I was still shocked it wasn't happening, but it was a great segue into knowing what I wanted to do. And you got to meet Macaulay Calkin years later in 2018 on his podcast. Did you talk about it on his podcast with him? Yeah, yeah. We, we wanted to do a live read of the script. Um, so, uh, <laughs> Hopefully someday we can do something with, you know, the Home Alone, uh, the Home Alone idea. That's awesome. Well, Infrared, your new film, is a, a found footage horror film about an abandoned school that something terrible has happened at it. Uh, there's a film crew that are hoping to get enough film uh, together to make a pilot uh, of a, one of those like ghost hunter kind of style television shows. Uh, and then they meet the school's caretaker. That's you. And you are not what you seem. And I've read that you said that you based this character on someone that you met when you lived on a ranch in Arizona. Uh, and you say when you were there during your time there, that some pretty strange things happened uh, while you were there. What's the story on that? Yeah, I was living in um, in a small town in Arizona while I was uh, writing an another horror film I was making um, called Miracle Valley, which is about mm -hmm. a cult. And I had met this guy who was running properties in that area. And um, just the whole vibe of it, the more I got to know the person, the way the whole experience played out, um, it had a weird, like, paranormal feel to it as if this guy believed he was several other people um and he'd refer to people as as if they were real and i just thought like the whole thing was so traumatic in a lot of ways and so bizarre that once i left that area i was like i got to do something with this creatively and i hung on to it and i just thought about this character and wrote even wrote out scenes of what his past might be and then when i got approached to do this movie, I was like, oh, I'm gonna step right into the shoes of this mind that I've been trying to understand for the past couple of years. And I'm just gonna go for it and throw myself into it and see what happens. You're listening to Gregory Sestero on The Richard Krause Show. Find Infrared, his found footage horror film, wherever you legally download and buy movies. Interesting to have that backstory already in place because this is by and large an improvised movie, I understand. So uh, you've, you're coming in here though, like fully loaded, I guess, with all this character work already done. Yeah, and that was really helpful. And it also, it was really fun. Um, they gave me a lot of flexibility mm -hmm. in, in what, what I could do and what I could bring to the table. And uh, it was one of the first times I was able to just um, 
you know, just go for it in a way that I could surprise the filmmakers. You know, a lot of times everything is really structured, rehearsed. And this was something that was really engaging and fun because I could just take them on a ride of whatever I was trying to do and, and utilize these really strange kernels of experiences that I've collected over the years. Um, and therapeutic in a way, I think acting out as somebody who's caused you stress or trauma is a way to, you know, to, to get out there. I'm setting up a camera that has infrared capacity, which allows you to see in the dark. I didn't know what I was doing. That's why he died. My interest has always been trying to set that dark realm free. Spirit, we summon you to commune with us in this space. The Room remains part of your life. That movie still has an enormous following. There's still screenings. Uh, people still treat it as a, a cult film. Are you ever surprised at the longevity? Yeah, it's approaching 20 years. And Isn't that I, crazy? I, I, didn't, I didn't think anybody would ever see the film. Um, and it's just sort of a, a testament to the beauty of, of art is you just don't know what's going to click with people. And, you know, I kind of, you just threw in the towel. I'm like, Hey, you know, original, I was always embarrassed for people to see it or be like, Oh yeah, that's a, it's a different, it's a, it's a movie. And, you know, I, I, I survived it, but, um, you know, all these years later, it did something that, you know, people still love. So it's going to, it's going to be there and it's great. It's great that people appreciate it. And then for me, it's embracing that and just continuing to go on and have fun and make, make new films. You don't often get to be part of something that becomes part of like really the broad conversation. You have to embrace it. I'm sure that there have been times when you didn't want to, but uh, the the oh high mark meme was so ubiquitous for a while that uh, it, it 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 pierced pop culture in a way that really few other movies do, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's one of those things. I mean, I knew there was humor and comedy when we were making it, and I. I got a kick out of it but i never thought it would become something that yeah people it'd be a fabric of people's everyday life and that's yeah. um i mean that's what you hope to do when you make a film that was gregory sestero on the richard Krauss show you can find his film infrared wherever you legally download and buy movies big thanks to gregory for stopping by i did not hit her it's not true it's i did not hit her oh hi mark also, a big thanks to Dan Geller and Dana Goldfine. You can find their documentary, Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song, in theaters right now. And a big thanks to Martin Freeman for stopping by to tell us about the BritBox show, The Responder. Of course, though, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. Mm -hmm.